It is, it is good to be back with you, and I do appreciate not only the warm um, welcome back, but your prayers for us, for the group that um, has traveled. In fact, keep some of those prayers coming, because some of our group is actually traveling back today. There were those who um, were part of the Israel trip that did an extension in Jordan and um, in Egypt. So uh, pray for those who, who are still coming. It was, I don't want to speak for the others. I see some of the faces of those who are on the trip. Um, I don't want to speak for everybody else, but it was both... Um, spiritually refreshing and physically exhausting, um, and and I'm I'm feeling it. I still have not. We got back. Uh, we landed in Tampa Friday morning at 1 a.m. and um, I got to bed about 3:30 a.m. and slept for about two hours. And um, so I, I slept Friday night. I went to bed at 7 p.m. and slept till six the next morning. And I was in bed last night at about eight o'clock, and my daughter was mocking me for it. <laughs> We went to dinner at 4 and, and went to bed at 8, and uh, she said, that's a threshold that I had crossed. I said, look, I'm still on Tel Aviv time, child, um, but, but it, was, it was wonderful. We did have some um, challenges, had a little bit of illness kind of move through our tour group, but everybody had such a great attitude and, you know, recovered relatively quickly and, and still had a, just a very powerful trip. And, and I'm going to look forward to sharing pieces of that with you as it fits. I'm not going to turn our time of worship into um, kind of a show and tell because that's not what worship is. But as we do journey through this season together and in these weeks to come, as there's opportunities to share with you some of the experiences that we have, we, we certainly will because many of you were a part of that vicariously. And we, we thank you for the prayers and the, uh, and the encouragement. But we begin today, um, the first Sunday in our Lenten journey uh, that began Wednesday with Ash Wednesday and, and Pastor Jay who led that. And I want to say another word of appreciation to, uh, to, uh, to Reverend Dave and his um, preaching and leading last week in worship as I was away. And I really appreciate that he went long at 945, so there's no pressure on me. So... Um, but, uh, but it was good, and I, I, really, I really appreciate him and, and all those who step up and into ministry um, when we're gone. And um, so Wednesday began the, the season of Lent with Ash Wednesday. I know many of you are here for the service and the imposition of the ashes. Um, how I did, I, I didn't even dawn on me in preparation for our trip that we were going to be in Jerusalem on Ash Wednesday um, with the group. And so I didn't take ashes with me. I don't know why, just kind of not thinking ahead, but I did have, as we celebrated Ash Wednesday together in our time, uh, we had communion together and had oil and used oil to anoint and make that mark of the cross as we began that journey with you. And in fact, it was what was even kind of a neat thing too. Again, totally unplanned, but on Wednesday morning, a couple of us got up early and we walked to the, to the old city of Jerusalem um, before the day kind of began. And we were walking around the city, and we made our way to the, to the church of the Holy uh, Sepulchre, which is the place where Jesus was, the, his, one of the traditional historic sites of Jesus' crucifixion and burial. And because it was Ash Wednesday, they had various services, masses going on in the church. Uh, they had a Greek Orthodox service, they had a Roman Catholic service, they had some other um, services uh, going on. And so uh, Scott Bush, who's often at this worship service with us, uh, he did the extension, so he's not here today. Uh, he and I and, and a friend of his name, Maureen, um, we were there and they did the sprinkling of the ashes in that holy church and we got to participate in that. That was very powerful, very moving. Didn't understand a word of what they were saying, but that's okay. 
that's okay because we were worshiping with brothers and sisters. It reminds us sometimes how our faith, how the Holy Spirit works across nationalities and borders and languages and unites us in the love of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So anyway, so all of that was wonderful. So we're in that together now. We're in this, this season of Lent. And, and I shared with you a couple weeks ago that what, what I want to do in this season is, is spend our, our weeks together in one kind of in, in the pinnacle week of Jesus's life. The, the, the ministry of Jesus, depending on various scholars, but roughly about three to three and a half years, from the time of his um, baptism and temptation in the wilderness to his crucifixion and resurrection. And so in the Gospels, you have each of the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that reflect that they give the account of those three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. But it's a relatively brief account. I mean, think of the longest gospel is Matthew. It's 28 chapters for three and a half years. But in addition to that, over a third of the gospels are dedicated not to the three and a half years, but to the last week of Jesus' life. From Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday, a third of the gospels, Matthew 21 through 28, are about the last week of Jesus' life. John 12 through 20, last week of Jesus' life. Luke 19 through 24, the last week of Jesus' life. You get the point. There are 89 chapters in the four Gospels. 29 of those chapters are about the events of the last week of Jesus' life. Because it is so pivotal and significant. In fact, it was once described, it said that the Gospels are the narrative of the passion of Jesus the last week of Jesus' life with long introductions. I mean, think about that. So, so what we're going to do is we're going to, and I titled the series, The, the Week That Changed the World. We're going to spend six of the seven weeks of, of Lent looking at some of the events of the last week of Jesus' life. They, they move through this pattern. This is the brief, the brief overview. Palm Sunday, Triumphal Entry Sunday. That starts Holy Week. That's what we're going to talk about today. And then on Monday, we have Jesus and the money changers and his, his anger at the abuse and the, the abuse of, of the temple and the abuse of the people using religion to profit off of others. And so there's, there's that event. On, on Tuesday, there's the t- a lot of the teachings of Jesus. In fact, six of John's chapters, the Gospel of John, are the teachings of Jesus during what we call Holy Week. On Wednesday, we actually don't know anything of what Jesus did. That is, the Gospels are silent about what happened on Wednesday. But then we pick up with the movement of, of Christ and the disciples on Thursday. We move into the Last Supper and the, the prayer time in the Garden of Gethsemane. On early morning on Friday, we read of Jesus' arrest, his trial, his accusations, the beating and condemnation, the journey up to Golgotha as Jesus carries his cross and is crucified, his death and then his removal from the cross as he's laid in the tomb. Saturday, Jesus is in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and then on Sunday morning, resurrection. And so as we journey through the holy season of Lent, we're going to look, we're not going to exhaust all the the material of uh, the last week of Jesus' life, but we're going to look at some of the pivotal moments and we're going to Um, wrestle with that and what that means for us in our faith as we build to the celebration of of easter and so we we begin with the 
triumphal entry. We begin with this entrance of Jesus into the holy city of Jerusalem. And I read Luke's account of that this morning. Uh, verse, or chapter 19, beginning at verse 28. And so let's get into the scripture this morning. This is Jesus as he comes into the celebratory atmosphere uh, as he enters the city of Jerusalem. This is what we read. It says, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. He sent on two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, that we would hear and be open to your word and, and to, the, to the, the preparation for the celebration of your greatest gift to us, our freedom and deliverance. But help us to make this journey through the season of Lent, to not rush to the end of the story, but to experience the moments of your week as we are strengthened in our faith. Bless this time, we pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. It's an interesting title that we give to this Palm Sunday event, to this moment that Jesus comes in um, to, to the city of Jerusalem. Think about how we often celebrate it. We celebrate it um, as it's a parade. Um, Palm Sunday events, which is normally when we read this text, and we celebrate in song and, and you know, the different traditions of waving palm branches and people processing in to kind of commemorate this, this excited entrance that Jesus has coming into the city. And we call it the triumphal entry. Triumph. Victory. Glory. Praise. Accomplishment. But was it? But, but was it? 
Why triumphal? Because I think in many ways, it could be called the, the tragic entry. I mean, think about how quickly. It's such a, such a strange story in many ways. And strange, I mean, by the stark contrast of, of the verses that I read. Because it begins with this scene of euphoria, right? Of, of Jesus being celebrated as he comes in and he's riding the donkey and they're laying cloaks and, and they're laying palm branches in front of him and they're singing the hosannas. They're proclaiming him king, hosanna, which means save us. And it seems like such a joyful moment. And the very next thing we read at verse 41 is Jesus weeping over the city. Not, not weeping tears of joy, but tears of, of sadness. And, and I mean, it is a, I mean, it's a hot, cold kind of moment. You know, it's the proverbial bucket of ice water. If you really kind of wrestle with how quickly we, we kind of have this turn of events in the, in the emotion and the experience of Jesus. And so I think we have to wrestle with that. Why? Why in what seems to be so uplifting is Jesus' spirit so broken? And, and I believe it's, it's simple yet, yet profoundly important for us. It's because Jesus recognizes the disconnect between the expectations of the people and the reality of who he was and what he came to do. And I think that contrast, I think the, the conflict is represented in two significant uh, images from the triumphal entry. And that is palm branch and colt or donkey because I think in that moment we kind of see this conflict when Jesus comes into the city and as he he chooses to ride this donkey and he is proclaiming he is proclaiming who he is and he's proclaiming because this event goes back to the to the prophet Zechariah and Matthew talks about this in his text but if you go back to Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 9 verse 9 of, of that book in the Old Testament. This is what we read. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. When Jesus chooses this entry into the city, he's choosing an image intentionally that will connect the people to their story. He is proclaiming, This is being fulfilled. The king is coming. And when the people begin to pick palm branches and lay them down in front of Jesus, they're picking a symbol of victory. They're picking a symbol that says, this is our king. This is the one we have waited for. This is the Messiah. And all of that seems like a wonderful connection between those two realities until you realize that what they wanted Jesus to be and who Jesus came to be were not the same thing. And the conflict is those verses. They're laying down palm branches because they want a king that's going to come in military might. There are people that have been under the oppression of Roman domination. They want deliverance. They want to meet military power with military power. They want liberation. And they want a king that's going to raise an army. They want a king riding a war horse. That's what they want. That's the way kings would come into cities when they were victorious in military battle. Or when they were leading the army, they didn't ride a donkey, they rode a horse. And they came in proclaiming their authority and their dominion. But 
Jesus rides a donkey. See, they missed the significance of that because a, a war horse was a symbol of political power. A donkey was a symbol of peace. And in fact, they forgot the very next verse Zechariah proclaimed in his prophecy, verse 10. See, their, their minds probably went to verse 9, but if they'd have remembered verse 10, they'd have remembered these words. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. Hear that. I will take away the war horses and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. See, they wanted temporary deliverance. Political deliverance is always temporary. Uh, the most powerful nations in human history are all temporary. They don't last. Romans, Greeks, um, no, no political power is eternal. But that's the deliverance they wanted. But Jesus knew that he came to give them something else. Why does he grieve? Why does his heart break as he looks over the city? Because he knows that they've missed him. They've seen him. But they've missed him. They want something that he didn't come to give because in their want, they're missing the fact that God is meeting their greater need. Now hear that. In, in, in searching for what they want, they miss the fact that Jesus came to meet their greater need. And do not lose sight of how quickly the crowd turns. At how quickly they walk away from him. How quickly those cries of Hosanna turn to cries of crucify him. We are a fickle people. That's human nature. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is from Winston Churchill. When one of his friend was, a friend of his was commenting and said, Winston, weren't you impressed that 10,000 people came to hear you speak? And he said, no, because I know 100,000 people would come out to watch me hang. You know? I mean, in, in that way, build up and tear down. Don't know how quickly they turned away. Because who Jesus was didn't meet with the expectation of who they wanted him to be. And when things don't meet our expectation, it sometimes surprises us. Sometimes we just don't even see it. It catches us off guard. It, it challenges us, sometimes in superficial ways. I can remember, as about a 10 or 11-year-old, uh, our family would take a vacation Almost every summer, we'd go up to the mountains in North Carolina, and then we'd go back to Atlanta, and we'd go to a Braves game, and we'd go to Stone Mountain, and we would often go to Six Flags, the amusement park in, in Atlanta. And uh, we were there one summer. Uh, we, were, uh, we were out in front of one of the roller coasters waiting to get on, and we saw a crowd. I saw this crowd start moving toward us. And, of course, at an amusement park, there's crowds all over the place. But, but sometimes you can kind of sense when there's a, a group of people, about 12 to 20 people that are kind of moving in unison. And this was a group of people that were moving in unison. And what I realized as they got closer is there was like, it was security. There were bodyguards, and they were surrounding this person who happened to be a celebrity, happened to be a famous athlete, happened to be somebody who I had watched a lot on television as a kid growing up. And his name it was Sugar Ray Leonard, the boxer. And, you know, growing up in the, in the you know, late 70s and, and early 80s, you know, championship boxing was on regular TV. You didn't have to pay money for pay-per-view. So I'd watched Sugar Ray box, um, you know, my, my young years and, and idolized him. He was amazing. 
And, um, and so in my mind, in my 10 or 11-year-old mind, he was a larger-than-life figure. He was, he was mythical. He was, he was just, you know, kind of a towering presence until he walked by me. And I'm like, he's little. <laughs> he's like 5'10". Now, granted, it was a little taller than I was at the time, but all of a sudden I'm like, that's Sugar Ray? You know, because in my mind, he was huge. He was, he was 5'10", 150 pounds. He was a middleweight, but that didn't mean anything to me on the television, right? I had an expectation, and he was very nice to people, and it was a pretty cool moment. I don't mean to minimize that at all, but, but it was this kind of realization that what I expected what didn't meet with the reality of, of what I saw. I'd created something in my head that didn't match the moment. Well, that's surface level. That's insignificant, but it's profoundly true in this moment as well. The people had created an expectation of what Messiah meant, of, of what it meant to be the, the promised one. And because Jesus didn't meet that, they missed him. They missed him. They walked away. And in fact, here again, what Jesus says as he weeps over the city. I want you to hear again the words that he uses there in, in Luke 19. He says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known the day that would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. He goes on as he, as he um, prophesies the destruction of the city, which will come a few, not even a full generation after Jesus. He says, it happens because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You didn't recognize. Yes, did they proclaim him king? Yes. Did they sing hosannas? Yes. Did they throw cloaks and palms in front of him? Yes. Did they understand what he came to do? No. No. Because they were so focused on what they wanted, they missed the gift of God that met them at the place of need. They knew what they wanted, but they missed what they needed. God came to liberate us in a way that, that is not tied to the external realities and circumstances of our lives. It is wonderful when God answers prayers and is with us in ways that the road becomes smooth and the prayers become answered exactly like we want them to and everything breaks our way. Those are moments to celebrate and be thankful. I am thrilled when that happens for me or for you. But that's not what God's promise is. That's not the deliverance that God gives God did not come. What they wanted was they wanted a Messiah that was going to meet hate with hate and violence with violence and war with war and power with power. And Jesus says, I've come to liberate you in a new way. I've come to break the chain, to break the wheel that spins over and over and is never-ending. Jesus comes to say, I'm not going to meet hate with hate. I'm going to meet hate with love. I'm not going to meet vengeance with vengeance. I'm going to meet vengeance with sacrifice. I'm not going to meet the powers of this world with the powers of this world, but I'm going to meet the kingdom of this world with the kingdom of God that creates things anew and sets a new trajectory and a new path and liberates us in ways that are not momentary but are eternal and give us a promise not of what always we want but the gift of salvation that we need. Here's the the tragedy of Palm Sunday, and I think it gets played out in our lives sometimes. We miss it because we operate on a transactional faith. Lord, I will believe in you. I will follow you. I will trust you as long as. 
as long as. That's what the people, Lord, we'll believe in this Messiah as long as he comes in leading an army. And when they realized that's not who he was, they walked away. And they missed the gift that God had come. It is amazing how many people were completely unaware of the sacrifice of Jesus on that day on Golgotha. Because they'd walked away. They just didn't see it. Have we walked away? I think one of the most tragic things I see from time to time is people who walk away from their faith because God fails to live up to their expectations. And I understand that. And you may have been there before. Maybe you're there now. Don't hear my words as condemnation, but as sadness. Because when we miss God in our place of want, we sometimes step away from God meeting us in our greater place of need. And so I I challenge you to ask the question, what kind of a Messiah are you looking for? What kind of Messiah are you looking for today? As we sing hosannas in this holy season, as we figuratively lay the palm branches down, what kind of king do we celebrate? The king that operates according to our hopes and expectations or the king that shapes us to be open to the hopes and expectations that God speaks into our lives. God sent Jesus to be a voice of compassion and love, to be the hand that reaches out to us even in our greatest places of need, that liberates and frees us in a way that is both now and forever. Are we willing to receive it? There's a neat story that's told around the uh, funeral of Hubert Humphrey in 1978 at the White House, the former vice president. And uh, all the dignitaries, past presidents, had been invited back. And in 1978, for that funeral, for the first time in four years, came back to the White House, Richard Nixon. From that exile and from the shame of the end of his presidency, it's the first time he had come back. And he was persona non grata. Some of you remember that time. And he was kind of shunned and ostracized by those who had gathered. He was still in his wilderness. And Newsweek wrote an article that said at one of the gathering of the presidents and other dignitaries, uh, then-president Jimmy Carter walked in the room. And he saw over in the corner Richard Nixon just up against the wall. And it says Jimmy Carter immediately walked over. And he extended a hand. And Richard Nixon took it. Then he embraced him and gave him a hug. And he said, welcome home, Mr. President. And Newsweek said in that moment was a turning point in that uh, wilderness for Richard Nixon. Because in that moment, what he received was a gift of compassion and love. Jesus is the hand to us in more profound ways. In those moments when whatever we feel has pushed us aside or ostracized, when we're in our wilderness and reminds us of his presence, of his compassion and his love in far more profound and eternal ways. My prayer is that we see it. It is a very strange beginning to Holy Week, but it is powerful because it reminds us to not heap on God our expectations, but to allow God to speak into us his truth and to meet us in our places of need. Amen? Amen. All right, friends, let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we've got to be confessional. So often we, we come to you, Lord, with, with our expectations, 
We come to you like the people of Jerusalem. Lord, we will proclaim you king as long as you do this. As long as you meet our needs. As long as you step into the places of our expectations and desires. But, but that's not who Jesus is. Jesus confounds the ways of this world. And, and Jesus doesn't operate on our wants, but meets us in our place of need. Lord, help us to be open to that. And speak to our spirits. That as we begin this holy season of Lent together we'd be open to the gift and the profound power of the work of, of your Holy Spirit in our lives. This is our prayer. We ask it in Christ Jesus. Let the people of God say, amen.